And I always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, would I want to go see this movie? Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. As the wise man once said, print the shirts. We got shirts on the way. This is truly proof that Cinephile has arrived. We have shirts coming as we speak. I think we're days away uh, from Sanjik and I having our own gear, which is big news. And, and we know we're going to take care of the people that have been supporting us since day one. Mike Diesenhoff, Mark Simon, Jason Romano, people who tweet me all the time, Dave McPeak, a gentleman Frank was the guy who wanted more Truffaut conversation. You're all going to get taken care of. I promise you that. I think we're getting about a couple hundred shirts. Now, this is what I worry about. We see we get shirts, and then we just start giving them away left and right. So Stan's going to have to definitely ration them, but we have a, a few that we're going to take care of right away. And then, I don't know. I'll open this up. Maybe we can do like a raffle. Maybe we do a trivia on Cinephile. You can win a shirt. I'm not really sure. I leave that up to Stanzik. He's the brains of the I feel opera. like we're doing wedding invitations all of a sudden. <laughs> Like, what's what's our number? How many people can we send these to? Right. We, it, it is definitely. It's, it's a small wedding. If we're going to go on that level, it's a small wedding. But we are being taken care of. And really, our thanks to the entire department here, Devin and company, uh, for hooking us up with those shirts. We can't wait. Coming up today, J.K. Simmons, who I befriended at Celebrity Softball in San Diego earlier this year. He's going to join us. He's got a new film coming out, The Accountant. So we'll ask him about that. Ask him about Affleck, the great show, Oz. Um, and just his career, Whiplash certainly got him an Oscar, but he's been working for a long time and made a lot of memorable roles over the years. Also, the Scorsese stories, we're going with the, with an extended edition, the, the director's cut Scorsese edition. My brother uh, went and saw Main Streets again, and he said he thought it didn't live up or didn't hold up as well as it had in the past. Stanzik saw it was underwhelmed, so I went and watched it again. I watched Raging Bull again, which I do every year or two years. I try to watch it every year. And then I watched a film which is always referred to as Scorsese's biggest bomb. So I wanted to watch that again, which I've only ever seen once before. I rewatched it. I'll give a new review of that. Also, our three words uh, with one of my favorites, Ethan Hawke. And also the Actors Showcase, since Affleck's new movie is coming out, The Accountant, we rank Affleck's top five movies, which is actually harder than you think because as a director, he's terrific. But as an actor, like there's a lot of bad movies he's made. So i got to be honest. The first three I did off the top of my head. The other two stands, like, I had to go back and go, all right, maybe, yeah, okay, I can give this one a pass. So Geely is five? <laughs> <laughs> it would be a lot easier to do a top five worst Affleck. Geely, Reindeer Games, Armageddon. Like, there's a ton of turkeys this guy's made. They actually had that conversation on Levitar today. Better director or better actor, Ben oh, Affleck? Clearly a better director. because it... Hasn't missed yet. Right. As a director, he's excellent. He's won an Oscar. I mean, they, what, the best picture Oscar for Argo. He should have been nominated for director, of course. They got snubbed. But the, the, partly they gave him best picture because of how well it was directed. And they know they screwed up. But, yeah, he hasn't missed as a director. Now he's going to direct the new Batman movie, which he's calling just The Batman. Could have used a better title, but fine. Affleck, minimalist here, just going with The Batman. Uh, let's kick it off first with the first uh, film. It's only the, the only review that we're going to give this week is Birth of a Nation. I would give more, but honestly, I've been immersed in playoff baseball. I can't get enough of it, so it was tough for me even to tear myself off my couch to go see a movie. But I really did want to go see Birth of a Nation, and I'll give a backstory first on the film itself. So <clears throat> the film was released at Sundance earlier this year, huge ovation, and it was made actually as an independent film and then was sold for like what was a record $17.5 million by to, I believe, Fox Searchlight, who released the picture. And, and earlier in the year, it was like, okay, for sure, this is going to be – um, you know, a definite contender for one of the best pictures of the year. Then what happens is this controversy erupts involving Nate Parker. Now, Nate's the guy who who is an actor, director, producer, writer, you name it. And Birth of a Nation is his baby. He did it all when it came to this film. 
So this is truly a passion project, and he kind of feels like, all right, I've been vindicated by putting all my hard work in this. It took him seven, eight years to make the film. It's about a really dark chapter in American society, about a true slave revolt. But then the backlash hits, and a story gets released um, in The Hollywood Reporter, I believe it was, one of the trade magazines, about um, the fact that he was accused of rape back when he was in college and was exonerated. Um, but the woman who was actually, you know, says that she was raped by Nate and one of his friends killed herself a few years ago. So Nate Parker has now had to deal with a slew of allegations and the reopening and almost the retrying of this case. And I saw him on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper, and he was talking about it. He got very emotional, started crying, which, again, critics are saying, oh, he's acting again. He doesn't care. That's what these actors do. The camera's on. They start being phony. But his point was that I did not rape her. I did not commit sexual assault. I was cleared of the charges back in college. Um, and now this is being reopened and brought up again for no reason. Like I was, you know, I was tried in a court of justice. Um, the, the critics, though, say, but listen, this woman killed herself. Like what, what happened? What, obviously what must have taken place was so heinous. This must have an impact on her. Years later, she killed herself. And he said, Nate Parker said in the interview, he was not aware she'd committed suicide. Obviously, he had not uh, kept in contact with her since college. His, his claim is that he and his friend both had sex with this woman at the same time. Uh, her claim is it was sexual assault and that she was raped by them. Um, so what this has done is this causes just an enormous backlash. Now people are saying, well, don't, you know, don't go see the film. Why are you going to support a rapist? So Nate Parker, think of the dilemma here is in here. Eight years to make this film a passion project, and now he's dealing with stuff coming from years ago. And the film opens this past weekend, and it was a disappointment, both financially and in terms of what I saw visually. Struggles at the box office, only $7 million. Didn't even crack the top five, if I'm not mistaken, finished sixth. Um Girl on the Train was the number one movie, and it completely stole all the shadows. So now the Oscar hopes really dim for Birth of a Nation. After this guy thought he was going to take, you know, a film that was really his passion project. The best picture odds, in fact, on GoldDerby.com, a site of which I'm a part of. I'm one of the expert picks. You can see my picks for the Oscars, by the way, if you go to GoldDerby.com. Gone from 11 to 1 to 22 to 1 after the film's opening. And now Nate Parker, not even sure if he's going to get nominated. Now, with all that as the backstory, I'll say this. The actual film itself was a disappointment. And, you know, it falls in that in those genre films like uh, Glory and 12 Years a Slave, which just came out a couple of years ago, which won Best Picture. Steve McQueen was the director and is a, a much more formidable film than this one. The, the, the movie starts out now. Parker's you know playing a slave and it just kind of starts with these little vignettes about his life and just kind of you know, bringing about what this atmosphere is like. And, and, and Nate, the director does a really kind of. Good job of just establishing that culture. Penelope Ann Miller, first time I've seen her in years, by the way. She's playing uh, one of the slave owner's wife, and she notices as a kid that he can actually read. And so she she takes him to the, the library, takes him inside the house, which is, you know, obviously verboten at the time. And he starts to go touch one of the books. She goes, no, those people aren't for your books. Those books are for white folks. Here's a book you can read, though, and she gives him a Bible and then starts to teach him the Bible. So from there, he actually becomes a preacher, which is kind of an extraordinary feat. This guy's a slave, and yet he's a preacher. Now, his master, Army Hammer, is destitute financially. So one of the guys comes upon an idea. He said, why don't you take your slave and take him to different plantations and have him teach the other slaves how to be in line? Because too many of these uh, slaves are, are kind of acting out. and They're being rebellious, and they're not listening. So Army Hammer, the white slave owner, takes Nate Parker, the preacher, and starts taking him to different plantations and such. And <clears throat> there's one scene they're just kind of on horse carriage, and they just see like a body, and they just see the guy's brain just completely bashed in. And it's, it's all about Nate Parker's acting there, just very reflective as he's seeing, kind of just taking it all in, you know what I mean? 
Now, even though those images are powerful, the first half an hour is quite tedious. There's a couple of scenes that stand out. There's one scene he actually sees, you know, slaves for sale, and they're actually selling slaves. Like, think of it, it's an auction for human beings, and they're driving up the price. And he says to Army Hammer, he sees one of the women, he's like, you know, we've got to save her. And Army Hammer's like, how much, you, know, you think I got money here? Like, what are you talking about? But he does end up saving this one woman because he realizes that if she gets taken on these white slave owners, you know, she's just going to be completely abused, and his, his heart just happens to go out for her. So you've got the familiar scenes of, you know, singing Sweet Low, Sweet Chariot, and picking cotton and going on. And then there's one scene that really stands out. He goes there, and he sees one of the slaves who apparently has been acting out. So it's Nate Parker, and it's Army Hammer, and they're watching the slave owner talk to him. And the guy will not eat. Like, they, the, the slave will not eat. So he goes, all right, well, we'll have to take care of this. He goes and gets a pickaxe and just, like, bashes the guy's teeth in and then puts a funnel over his mouth and just puts all this slop in the funnel, like mashed potatoes and stuff. It's a revolting scene, and, it, and definitely it's one of the scenes that really kind of stands out in terms of summoning you to attention. But again, it's just too slow moving. It's too slow building as a film that, you know, after an hour you go, okay, I understand this is what's going on, but when are we going to get to the revolt? When is the rebellion? When does Nate Parker, this preacher, take action? And one of the slave owners then summons one of the slave's wives to come sleep with him. And afterwards, the husband's wife, you know, as he kind of reconnects with her and hugs her and consoles her, he says to him, where is he, Nat? Where's God now, Nat? And that's the scene where it starts, the wheels start to turn here, that we can't just keep living like this. He then answers back to his master, which results in a beating scene. Immediately, you think of a slave being beaten. You think of um, Glory, the the incredible scene with Denzel Washington, where he's just being whipped. And, uh, you know, that single tear comes down his face as he's trying to be so rigid and defiant and dignified. And yet, you know, you just see that glimmer of, of humanity come down his face, which he's trying to conceal. Similarly, there's a scene here where he's beaten, and there's a real um, outward Christ symbolism because he's, you know, he's got the arms splayed just like a Christ crucifixion, and then later after the beating in the middle of the dark kind of rises up. So from there, they say, okay, let's... Again, he's using the biblical overtones, which leads to slave rebellion. So the white people teach him to read the Bible, and yet it's the Bible that ends up teaching him that I've got to seek vengeance. He then says he gathers a few slaves, and now he finally gets the idea, okay, we're going to take action. And he goes, look at David, look at Gideon, look at Joshua, look at Samson. You know, he stood up against this. And so it takes a long time to get there. It takes an hour and 25 of just seeing slaves being mistreated with small vignettes. And there's no real strong characterizations. There's no characters to really identify with. It's just a kind of a series of small vignettes, and it's a real narrative inconsistency. And that's why the film, to me, is a disappointment. Now, once you get to that hour 25 moment, finally now, okay, this is the slave revolt. Now you've got some passion. It's almost as if the film, much like the character, now becomes unshackled. Now is that scene that you see in all the trailers, like, revenge! And he screams, and now you've got to get some violence. Now you've got this cathartic outpouring after seeing these people just brutally mistreated and cruelly mishandled. Now is their time to to cry again, and it's like a battle cry. And, And after they're done killing their owners, all right, now on to Jerusalem, more and more, let's go. Um... And that's kind of the way the film goes. So I, I, I just think Nate Parker, as a director, he's very assured and very careful. But I think as a writer, he really kind of fails himself because there just wasn't a strong enough story. Like the ultimate plot, which is real-life story of a slave rebellion, is strong, Nat Turner. What you needed to have, though, was stronger characterizations. And whenever you're making a movie, like you, you, you're trying to be faithful to the actual story, but you do have to take – uh, liberties with the story like it's not a documentary so at some point you go all right let's let's condense three characters into one to make one character stronger let's add a subplot of potential slave mistreatment which probably agreed happened but isn't actually documented just to beef up the story to get the audience more involved 
Like, I, I got to think, watching that film, a lot of people are going to, like, A, it was a disappointment at the box office. So, like I said, it opened in six, seven million. It's going to disappear now. Unless the Oscars give it a big push, which now I don't really think they will. Like, I think it'll get a few nominations, but it's nowhere near the contender we thought it was six months ago. And how much of that is the film, to me, wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be? And how much of it is this Nate Parker rape controversy, which is being brought up again? All those factors are definitely going to be involved. Um, but I wish that the film had been stronger and gotten to the point, so to speak, sooner. The movie does end on a moment of ethereal grace. Um, you know, there's the, the Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit, playing. And it's one of the most jolting images of the entire film. There's a close-up of a butterfly, and the camera pulls out, and it's a young boy who's been hanged. And I thought about it, in a lot of these slavery movies, you know, you always get used to seeing adults hung. You always see, like, an adult male, 25, rebellious, whatever, and then you see the scene where they get hung. But I've never seen in a movie, like, a young boy hung. You see him hanging, and then the camera pulls out, slow slow move then you just see you know seven eight slaves all hung like it, it's it's a jolting image and a haunting image and i think if the film had had more of that it had a little bit more chutzpah if it had been a little bit more aggressive then i think the overall impact would have been strong the final 30 minutes is very strong and i would recommend that but it takes just far too long to get to that point so unfortunately uh, nate parker's new film birth of a nation i'm only going to give it two maple leafs I just wish it had, had more of a narrative pull. But I do think he's a talented guy. I think as a director, like I said, he had an assured style. And as an actor, he did a good job, especially when his character becomes unshackled. The movie becomes unshackled. But I'm curious to see what happens. As, as, at the box office, it's going to disappear. Oscar nominations, I don't know. La La Land's going to be the big favorite. There's other films. Manchester by the Sea is coming out soon. There's a film called Loving, which I saw the trailer for, with Joel Edgerton, which is about the first interracial romance or one of the first marriages that took place down south. That looks like an excellent film. So... It's unfortunate, but I think Birth of a Nation is probably going to be disappearing shortly. What can you tell me about Fences with Denzel? That's supposed to be extraordinary. They're saying that's big Denzel's, I don't want to say reclamation projects. It's not like he ever went anywhere, but like a true, critically acclaimed great film. Denzel right now is the favorite for Best Actor. It's going to be his third Oscar. Apparently that's amazing. Again, story of blacks being repressed, set in the 50s, period piece. And as a director, apparently he's as good as he is as an actor. As a director, you know, the great debaters. Um, you know, hasn't really stood out Denzel's filmography, but apparently Fence is supposed to be awesome. And so, he won a Tony for playing that role. Correct. Right? So, yeah, exactly. So he's adapted that role now to the stage. So the movie's right now Oscar bait. I, I got to remove Birth of a Nation from the equation. I think it's La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, Fences, and this film Loving. Those are the ones that are definitely getting a lot of buzz. Unfortunately, not for Birth of a Nation. Joined now by J.K. Simmons. You can see his new film, The Accountant, opening this Friday. J.K. and I go way back to Celebrity Softball in San Diego, which I call with Eduardo Perez. I don't have the box score in front of me, J.K. I'm pretty sure you went two for two with a couple of singles. I still can't believe Terry Crews struck out, which we had him on the podcast recently. He swears that was no accident, but I don't know. I walked up to him after that and I said, are you sure you're left-handed? <laughs> because he... You know, he looked like one of those kids I coached in Little League, like in T-ball, where they get up and they're, and, they're, and they're, you know, so uncoordinated that you go, put the glove on the other hand. And then, and then they go, oh, yeah, no, I actually threw out with his hand, you know. Because he was, his left-handed swings were not pretty. That's a great call. Cause I remember he took his shirt off, and my call was, he looks like a great god when he took his shirt off, and then he, then he just embarrassed himself when he struck out. It was awful. Yeah, yeah. No, he's got the go-to move, you know, with the, the flexing pecs and, um, you know, which I'm, of course, I'm trying to compete with now with my biceps photo that's uh, breaking oh. the internet currently. That's all. That's, um, I, I said uh, to my producer, but, but, Stancic, I don't, all anybody wants to talk to you about now, you're a talented Oscar-winning actor. Everybody wants to talk to you about is that picture of the biceps and State Farm. That's it. 
I know, and it's it's so terrible to be perceived as a piece of meat like that. You know, I'm I'm a human being. I'm not just a piece of sexy, muscular man flesh. <laughs> exactly, a talented thespian. And it's not State Farm, man. It's not State Farm. Oh, well, it's it's, farmers. Oh, if I, I'm an idiot. See, exactly. I don't. Even, see, I was so vigilant in not talking about it. Now I completely screwed it up in mentioning it. See, it's on me. <laughs> um, as I had mentioned to you when I mentioned San Diego, I just I adore the show Oz, and I want to do a deep dive into it if we can. You're a theater actor who then plays this role. Tom Fontana uh, writes this role for you. You're a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, and your character. Vern Schillinger. I thought it was so well done by you, like one of the great villains ever in TV history. And to me, what's so amazing about your career, JK, and the fact you won the Oscar for Whiplash and you've gone on to make so many great films since this show, to me, I thought you'd be eternally typecast because you were so good as Schillinger. I'm like, no, every time I look at this guy, I'm going to picture this 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 Nazi. And I know that for you, you were taking the role home with you a little bit because your wife was a Broadway dancer and she was in Beauty and the Beast and it, you were really kind of immersing yourself in the character. But how did you approach playing this guy who was so vile and yet so entertaining? Well, it, it was, uh, first of all, to address that, you know, the fear of being typecast. I mean, I, I, I was, like you said, I was a theater actor. I was, you know, you, you, nobody gets rich doing theater. Well, maybe Nathan Lane now, but, you know, uh, <laughs> Um, you know, and I had this opportunity to be on this new groundbreaking HBO show and I'm meeting Tom Fontana, this, you know, big time writer producer. And, and I found myself sitting there almost talking my way out of the job because, uh, because I was aware of the impact it could have. And I was aware of, you know, how I could be typecast playing a Nazi for the rest of my life. And I, and I, I knew that's not what I wanted my career or my life to be, you know? So he kind of pitched me this whole thing about how the character is going to start out as maybe we think he's going to be a, you know, befriend our, our every man character, the, the Lee Turgeson character Beecher. And, and that as it develops, then we're going to find out what a vile SOB he is and this and that. And, you know, kind of pitched uh, uh, the arc of the character. Of course, the arc of the character ended up being like, you know, the first half of the first episode before, you know, suddenly I was <laughs> tattooing my cellmates. <laughs> and we found out what a bad guy I was going to be. So yeah, the, the, um, so yeah, no, there was that very real fear that I was that I was going to be typecast, and then uh, you know, like a, a one of the many blessings that's landed in my lap in my career, just when Oz was uh, hitting the airwaves, the folks at Law and Order called and asked me to play the shrink on Law and Order. So I had this real yin yang thing going on in the in the public eye, you know, very early on in my. Uh, I mean, I was you know forty years old, but in in my camera acting career that was kind of the beginning of it well it was amazing seeing the way like you said because Schillinger likes at the arc the, once you knew who he was once his cards were revealed it's right how bad can he be how much can he torture Beecher and then finally Beecher gets his comeuppance the end of season one he defecates on your face how what was your reaction when Fontana showed you that script or when you shot the scene I, like, what, what was going through your head well, now? I, that's Here's my perspective on that scene because because like it was a year or two later, I get a call at home. This is you know this is late nineties you know so we we all have our you know answering machines at home. I get a I get a I get home and there's a, a message on my answering machine from Tom. Uh, okay, hey, it's Tom calling. He said, "Listen, I had this uh, I had this script idea for Schillinger, but he said I just you know I want to make sure you're cool with it because I don't want to." And I'm thinking, okay. You have had me <laughs> rape people, kill people, tattoo people. You have had a guy poop on my face. 
I, I was so terrified of what the hell, and, and he never okayed any of those. It wasn't like, hey, is it okay if you're, you know, lying semi-conscious on the floor and a guy squats over you and takes a big dump in your mouth? <laughs> so I was terrified of what the hell this was going to be. Turns out he wanted me to sing. Oh, yeah, that, and that episode was amazing. I'm glad you mentioned that, that musical episode, because yeah. you got Rita Moreno, who, of course, West Side Story, she's going to belt it out. She's phenomenal. But the scene of you and Beecher singing together, that was so audacious, and it was amazing. It worked. Yeah. Beecher and Schillinger sing a Barry Manilow duet, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, no, yeah, he never asked me about, you know, what I might be naked or, you know, you know, anally violating somebody, but he, uh, or, 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 yeah, or having a guy crap in my face, but he did ask me if it would be okay for me to sing a song, so. I know you're seeing uh, Harold Yeah, Par- that was a show, and Fontana, Fontana took great pride in, uh, uh, you know, in sort of, you know, not just the great cast that he assembled, and, uh, and I always used to brag about how that show was so good because of all the New York actors, but now that I'm an L.A. actor, I I can't brag about that anymore. <laughs> but it's true. Um, I, but Tom was always proud of the just the sheer boldness, just the you know the audacity of, uh, uh, of what he was doing and what these actors were willing to go along with. And I think it was a critical show in establishing what HBO was all about, which was you know no holds barred television. And like you said, that made it headlines. I remember reading. In fact, there was a huge gay audience because they were like, oh, all these guys are really fit. You see them walking around naked and having all these scenes. So you actually had people, right? Different audiences who were attracted for different reasons to the show. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, there was a big audience for that, you know, naked dudes on TV. I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of demographics that are going to find that appealing. (laughs) Uh, We're talking with J.K. Simmons right now. His new film, The Accountant's opening in a couple of days. I know you're seeing Harold Perrineau tonight in Cherry Orchard. I loved Eamon Walker as Kareem Saeed. I thought he was so good. I remember years later being shocked he was British. I was like, oh, my God, that guy, that was Kareem. He was played off fellow. You know, I I was actually just texting with Eamon uh, two days ago. We were, um, uh, you know, we met on that show, and and, uh, uh, and he's a Brit. And I took him uh, during that first season, took him to his first American baseball game. The Tigers were in town. That's my team. So, so we go up to Yankee Stadium. No, it was during the second season because, because the show had been on the air. So, um, you know, Eamon's got his Yankees cap on. I got my Tigers cap on. And, and we're there at Yankee Stadium in the, you know, in the semi-cheap seats at the time because, yeah, you know, it was the early days of HBO. And, uh, and people, you know, you'd see people do double takes at us for a variety of reasons. Cause you know, they'd kind of look and they'd go, Oh, I, I kind of know who that guy is. And I know who that, wait a minute, you know, what's wrong with this picture? We got, <laughs> we got the head of the black Muslims and the head of the Aryan brotherhood here, you know, having a beer and chatting together. Something's something's wrong. Oh, that's classic. Like I said, credit to you for offering so many rich roles beyond that. And it's funny though, even when watching whiplash JK, the scene where again, you kind of befriend miles teller where you go, Hey, what are your, what are you, what are you write the story of the movie. You go, what are your parents? Do? Oh, okay. Your dad's an English teacher. Oh, that's pretty cool, man. All right. Yeah. Keep it up. kid. To me again, it was the same thing we did to Lee Turgis's character with Beecher. Like, all right, buddy, I'm going to take care of you. And then he just completely abused the guy once, once the next scene unfolds. You know what? I never, I never actually thought of that direct connection until this very moment. That's yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, sort uh, of lay, you know, laying the, uh, you know, baiting the trap with honey there. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure you've gotten so annoyed now. I can't imagine how annoyed you get when people ask you if you're rushing or dragging. So I'm not going to ask you that. What I will ask you is that Oscar <clears throat> speech was awesome. When you said, "Hey, go call your mom, call your dad, don't text, don't do any of that stuff." Where did that come from? Was that planned or was that spur of the moment? It, it, it was 
Some of both. I mean, I, you know, I just went up there knowing that, that I wanted to talk about family and, you know, acknowledge my wife and, and, uh, you know, my kids were there and, and, uh, you know, that's always been just what's most important to me. So, um, so that was what I wanted to focus on. And, uh, you know, in the, in the two years before that, I had, I'd lost both my parents and, uh, you know, we were, we were close and had a great relationship, uh, you know, their entire lives, both my brother and my sister and, and our folks. And, uh, I was just missing them and, uh, you know, and as close as we, as close as we always were, you know, there's that aspect of, you don't really know what you've got till it's gone. And, uh, yeah, so that was, that was what was in my brain. And, and then, uh, and then those are the words that kind of tumbled out of my mouth. No, it was a fantastic a billion people or <laughs> whoever's watching. Uh, it was a fantastic moment. I think you you definitely stumbled upon something which is actually true, which is too often we're just so technology obsessed. There's something to be said for just just calling and reaching out. Uh, the account opens in a couple of days. Yeah. The trailers look fantastic. What was it like working with Ben Affleck and uh, putting this movie out there? Ben's the headliner of the movie, and and I'm a substantial part of the movie. But it's one of those movies that is so complex, and there are so many different plots and different characters going along that. Uh, but I, I, I hardly had an opportunity to, you know, spend any time with Ben, actually, uh, you know, during the shooting of the movie. We'll be spending a lot more time together in the uh, the Batman Commissioner Gordon universe, or the, uh, I mean, the Commissioner Gordon slash Batman universe, give myself top billing. Um, <laughs> but the movie itself is, is such a beautiful, like, multi-layered piece of work. And I just saw it again at the LA premiere, and I saw it for the second time, first time with, like, a real big audience, and uh, it, it just... Uh, it has like a lot of sort of kind of, you know, exciting action moments and a lot of sort of aha moments where, where you, you know, kind of really feel the audience respond viscerally to it. But uh, the thing that stood out to me mostly the second time was the complexity and the subtlety and the beauty of, of Ben's portrayal of this, of this character who's on the autism spectrum and, uh, and, and has had a, just a bizarre upbringing. And it's, it's a, it's one of those movies that's so hard to promote and talk about because I don't want to give anything away. I just want to tell people to just go see the darn movie. <laughs> You've definitely got us hooked with that kind of uh, an assessment of it. We do something on the pod here, J.K., as we wind this down. We like to just kind of break down actors in three words. I don't believe we've tried to do that with you, but can you describe for me Ben Affleck in three words? Big. <laughs> Good. Um, smart. Smart. Uh, dad, big, smart, and dad. Book it. That's good stuff. And last one for you. Do you? I mean, think... dad's not an adjective, but uh, so <laughs> I, I, that's a little bit of a cheat there. No, no, no. But it yeah, works. I think, that... I think I think two things. You know, two things that people might not realize about Ben that haven't met him. First, first of all, uh, you know how how just like smart and well rounded and 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 uh, uh, well informed a, a filmmaker he is, not just an actor. You know, but also he's a big guy, man. People when he and when he and Matt first got famous with Goodwill Hunting and there were all those pictures of them together, people kind of assumed Matt was a shrimpy little guy because he's you know two inches shorter than Ben. But you know Matt's like six two and Ben is like this six foot four block of granite guy. So <laughs> I, I I'm with you on that. I've I just, never... You know what? Here's, here's here's why I'm putting that out there. I just realized why I'm putting that out there. Right. Because if you do see me standing next to Ben, I want people to know that I'm not five foot four. You know. <laughs> I, I mean, can we look, we look like uh, Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson, you know, in, in Well, that's what, that's why I don't know. Is Affleck big or is Hollywood just small? But I don't. I mean, that's a conversation. For <laughs> <Yeah. other time. laughs> 
<laughs> Last one for you. To, to go back to your character on Whiplash, is good job the worst bit of advice you think that people do give? Do you, you agree with what your character espouses in the film? You know what? There, there's there's a lot of that philosophy and that sort of speech that I that I give to him in the club, and I, and I went off on this improvised rant about it that you know that Damien you know didn't use <laughs> because because there is an aspect of that that I find absolutely true, and and uh, you know and being a dad raising kids, our kids are teenagers now. You know, it's uh, I, I, you know, I, and I find myself doing it all the time, giving this sort of you know, heaping praise on, on a kid for just, you know, just a, a very random and not particularly monumental achievement, you know, and, 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 and I think these, the, the, and it's out of love, of course, you know, I mean, you, you know, this is, you know, you're, you're praising your kid, but I think, I think there is that aspect of every time a kid does something, if you say good job, then, then, you know, how are they supposed to develop a work ethic and how are they supposed to, you know, really want to aspire to greatness, well, there's definitely a lot to that. Last Not that everybody needs to aspire to greatness, too. That's that's where I got into my own personal sort of philosophical battle because it's like, you know, I think I think aspiring to greatness can lead people to to lead kind of screwed up lives sometimes. So, uh, I, but again, that's that's the dichotomy and that's the ambiguity of the movie uh, Whiplash, and I think that's one of the things that that uh, that made it such an impactful movie for so many people. Well, we can't wait to go watch The Accountant. J.K. Simmons, who's been a talented actor for many, many years, I'm so thrilled to see you receive recognition with the Oscar for Whiplash, because like I said, I think for years you were, you were doling out great work. And um, I also, also, as a baseball guy, good luck to your Tigers. I felt bad. Uh, they were going to make a run there at the end, but Castellanos had a breakout season. Verlander looked like the guy he once was, but uh, came up empty. Is there a team you're rooting against? Now? Maybe you're against the Blue Jays because the Tigers are out of it? You know what? I've moved on to college football. I'm a Buckeye fan. I know it seems like a weird combo, Detroit Tigers, Ohio State. But those were the two places I grew up. So, uh, you know, as far as baseball, I mean, like most right-thinking humans, I, at this point I'm like, all right, let the Cubs win it. Let's finally, let them just win it, and all the Cubs fans can stop whining. <laughs> we can move on. But I'm, I'm, I'm all about college football now, though. Well, that's great, man. I appreciate uh, appreciate the time, and good luck to the Buckeyes, and good luck with the account. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Evan. A Scorsese story. So I had to go back and revisit some classics in Raging Bull and Main Streets. And i got to tell you, Stancic saw Main Streets, thought it was a little underwhelming. My brother said, I don't think it lived up. I thought it was fantastic. I hadn't seen it like in over a decade. I'm like, Wow. Main Street is as great as I remember, if not better. The movie starts out, and it's, and I get it. Maybe it's because I see it as the template for all his other films. But I think as a standalone film, just popping in Main Street on a Wednesday night, awesome. Like, I had an extraordinary time. And it starts out with this. And so many other movies, the character's sleeping and then jolted up. Scorsese, no. Starts the template right away. The first shot is Keitel woken up. Like, the movie already throws you in to the conscience of this guy. Like, he's already agitated. You know, that's where his old films always start. There's never any needless preamble to, boom, Keitel jolted awake. He's clearly a character in distress. Goes, looks himself in the mirror. This is after, by the way, the narration of Marty saying, you don't make up for your sins in the church. You make up from the street. The rest is BS and you'd know it. Great opening. Boom, looks himself in the mirror. Scorsese's character is always big on self-reflection. Travis looks himself in the mirror. Jake LaMotta looks himself in the mirror to start the ending of Raging Bull. And now you have this character, Keitel. Charlie, who's basically Marty. Then goes back to bed, triple cut. Little homage to Jean-Luc Godard, the Ronettes, boom, 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 
Man, this again sets the style. Marty, pop music, playing the music that was out there. Like, you got to go back. The movies back then, Stanzik, it was all score. Like, you never heard pop music. Like, Marty goes, this was the music that you heard walking down the street. You heard the Renettes, Be My Baby. Like, at the time, it was amazing to go, yeah, this guy's putting the Ronettes in his movie. But they had, like, issues with the licensing because he didn't have a lot of the film paid for. Like, now you gotta, you got to pay for the rights of these movies. He was like, no, let's put it in there. Boom. The scene where Jumpin' Jack Flash plays. De Niro first walks in, slow motion, a couple of girls ready to party. Like, that first three minutes is great. The music playing just sets up the atmosphere. Let the record show that you crushed Suicide Squad because they played pop music every time they introduced a character. Just for the record, no, continue. That, that was completely different. That was, like... Pop music of different eras. This is just pop music of that time. Like, it's one thing if the movie is like 1987 and you're playing all the pop hits. Like, Marty's playing the pop hits of that time. They're, they're literally just picking pop hits of the last 20 years. Here's Spirit by the Sea. Here's Jump Around. Like, that's completely different. Marty's taking what his characters are listening to in the 60s. Uh, so, you know, the first few scenes sets it up. Here's Charlie going around, goes to the church, guy gets thrown out. The, the second De Niro walks in, as soon as Jumpin' Jack Flash plays, I'm like, oh, it's on. Here's Johnny Boy. Like, De Niro is this loose wire. Like, he is all in, man. He is just bad news. And the scene of him and Charlie at the back, and Kaitel is trying to get him to pay the money, and it's it's wildly improvised, but it goes, like, at least 10 minutes where he's like, wait, you mean the money from last week? You said this Thursday. No, no, last Thursday. Oh, the 20 bucks? Yeah, okay. And eventually he spots in the money. They're going to go pick up these girls, and the movie goes on from there. But I love the relationship between Charlie and Johnny Boy. I just think the energy of the picture is amazing. Like, it, and one of the criticisms of Marty, and I'll agree with it to a certain extent, is movies have become way too long now. Like, every film you know, it's two, two and a half, three. Wolf of Wall Street's three hours. This movie, new movie, Silence, I can't wait to see it. Three hours and 15 minutes. Main Street's an hour 50. Like, it's nice and tidy. Like, there is something to be said for, like, a good hour 45. Here's what life was like in Little Italy. But I just, I love the, uh, the atmosphere of it, like I said, the energy of it. And um, there's that character, the way that Charlie and Johnny Boy are templated for so many. I did laugh at the scene which stuck out to Stancic when they do share the bed together. I went back to a little research, looked on it. They, they, I read one critic, he said, this deals with the uh, underlying homoeroticism of the picture, which is that Charlie, even though he's attracted to Teresa, this, which is Johnny Boy's cousin who suffers from epilepsy, him and Johnny Boy are really the ones who are in love with each other and they can't escape each other. Now, I don't agree with that. Charlie clearly, again, very Catholic. Charlie's always looking out for everybody. He tells Teresa one time, like, you know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi had it right. you got to look out for everybody. And Charlie's always just trying to be this good person. It reminds me of the line. I can't remember who said it, but, like, if he didn't worry about being such a good person all the time, he'd be a good person. Like, Charlie's so obsessed with being a saint. Like, he's always trying to save Johnny Boy from the damage of the fact he owes Michael all this money. It's like, well, just eventually Johnny Boy's going to do what he wants. And that's the scene where the De Niro finds out that he's having, you know, he has a relationship with his cousin. And he knows that if he tells Charlie's boss, who earlier said, yeah, you know that cousin who's sick in the head. And Kaitel goes, no, 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 she has epilepsy. He's like, that's what I said. She's sick in the head. And De Niro knows, hey, if I go tell your, if I go tell your uncle Charlie, he's like, oh, you can't do that. No, 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 listen. I know I'm the idiot. I'm the guy that owes everybody money. I'm some punk. Nobody respects me. But now I know that you're having a relationship. You're screwing my cousin who's epilepsy. And if I tell your uncle... Now we got a problem. You can see right away, Cantel backs off a little bit. They have this great fight. They just start going crazy. De Niro, for all, he says it's one of his loosest performances because he's just always giddy and he's got his hat on. But that scene where he explodes on Charlie, where Charlie grabs him, don't you touch me. And then finally that rage explodes between these two guys. But then again, that, that, that kinship is there. Then Charlie's like, hey, did I hurt you? Like after he runs up to you, all right, I'll take care of this. And they go and see Michael. The way De Niro does Michael, he literally owes him like $2,000. He gives him 10 bucks. He goes, where's the rest? Because Charlie gave him 30. He's like, I had to buy a couple of girls a couple of drinks. The way he looks at Charlie, he goes, you know, I borrow money from everybody, everybody in this neighborhood, and you're the only idiot. He doesn't say the word idiot, but you're the only idiot who will actually take my money. 
And he just he just takes ten dollars and throws it in his face because that that's Johnny way to a T. Like I don't care, man. I don't care about anybody. I just care about me. I'm id. If you're Freudian, I am the id. I don't give a damn. I'll do what I want. And Charlie's the ego looking at everybody. And the last scene when Michael goes, now's the time, and they, and they shoot him. Oh, prior to that, great sequence. There's like Italian opera music and and and. De Niro's running down the street. Again, that energy of the movie. Well, we've talked last time about the whole mook, mook. That scene's amazing. I'm a mook. I'm a mook. What's a mook? You're a mook. <laughs> all of a sudden, wait a minute, Mr. Postman's playing. The camera's just flying all over the place trying to keep up with these guys. This crazy energy. Like, you're all of a sudden, your friends in just one argument. Boom. They want to start a fight. This is the way these guys do. They always want to fight all the time. And it's interesting. Scorsese's the assassin. He's the one on the back of the car who actually shoots Charlie and Johnny Boy. There's got to be something there because Charlie is supposed to be Marty. He said semi-autobiographical. But he is the director and writer and the guy who made his personal film. I want to be the guy who shoots them. I feel like that's Tarantino-esque, but obviously he came much later. Right. But I'm going to put myself in the way. I'm going to be the assassin. All right. That was a lot of Mean Streets talk. I apologize. But I just I had to get it in there. I love it so much. It was great. Raging Bull watched again. I'll make this shorter. Uh, the thing about Raging Bull, which always gets me, it's wall-to-wall violence. Like, it's one of the greatest films of all time. Whenever people ask me, I say it's my favorite movie. But I offer this caveat. The difference between Raging Bull and Taxi Driver number two and Goodfellas number three is so infinitesimal, I often feel guilty even saying Raging Bull is my favorite. Like, I wish when people say to me, what's your favorite movie? I just go, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas. Like, they're all three. Like, it's on one day, I feel like it's Goodfellas. The next day, it's Taxi Driver. But if, if forced, you put a gun to my head, I say, fine, Raging Bull. Just because, like I said, I can't think of a movie with wall-to-wall violence, yet it's so lyrical and so beautiful. Like, the first scene, it's just Jake LaMotta shadowboxing, and Marty's going with Mascani playing. And then, boom, the next scene, he's, you know, he's in the uh, dressing room, you know, and now it's present day. It goes back to him getting punched in the face. The arguments with his wife. Like, the, the amount of humor in the movie, even amidst all the violence, too. Like, after he kind of gets in it with his wife and Pesci shows up, he starts yelling at the guy at the window, Hey, Larry! Hey, Larry! He's like, you animal, you filthy animal. He goes, your mother's an animal. Like, oh! And he starts telling Pesci, he goes, punch me in the face. I want you to punch me in the face. He's like, what's wrong with you? He goes, like, punch me in the face. Come on. He starts egging him on. And, like, it shows right away the sadomasochistic violence of Jake LaMotta. He has such guilt. He has such um, animalistic self-loathing towards himself. He's like, punch me in the face. Come on. Because he knows he himself is the Raging Bull. He himself is an animal. He is a terrible, worthless human being. And if the movie is not about the violence he inflicts in the ring, it's the violence he inflicts outside of the ring. And Jake LaMotta himself, who was a consultant for the movie, who wrote the book which was based upon, when he sees the film, which he's portrayed as this vile character, said, you know what? I was much worse than they even showed me to be, which is astonishing to think about. The entire movie, this guy, you know, he cheats on his first wife. He ends up beating Kathy Moriarty, his second wife, Vicky, who was just this prepubescent girl. Look at the movie. They say she's like... 15, 16, she's actually 18, I think, in the shooting of the film. Husky voice, she was great. Never better in a movie, Kathy Moriarty. Pesci, by the way, who had given up acting. He had done some acting a few years ago in a play, and then De Niro saw him, and he was working, he was running a restaurant, and De Niro goes, no, you're going to come here, you'll be great in this. Imagine if De Niro hadn't suggested that to Marty, like, Joe Pesci would not have been Joe Pesci, unless they gave him this role in Raging Bull, and he's perfect. I can't think of anybody better who could have played that role. The relationship between him and De Niro as brother and younger brother, and the fact that Pesci can kind of give it to him a little bit, even though Jake respects him, but he still goes back to him a little bit as well. Like the one scene, De Niro's worried about weight, and Pesci's like, stop eating. Like, how easy is it? He goes, listen, if you lose the fight, you still win. If you win, you win. He's like, I don't understand. He goes, listen, what's the problem? You're, you're, you're fat right now? He goes, just lose the weight. You lose the weight, and you beat this guy up, you're going to get a shot at the belt. If you can't make weight then that's the problem because if you do the fight and you lose, you're still going to get a shot at the champion because there's nobody else. So just stop eating. Like, let's go. 
And he's the only guy that can talk to Jake and get through to him. And Scorsese himself said, like, there's no way I want to make this movie. Like, when De Niro talked to me, he goes, I don't like sports. I don't understand what the appeal is. Like, I don't get it. And when De Niro was like, no, but this is us. We can." Really... And once Marty went through what happened with New York, New York, once he faced his own self-immolation, once he was so self-destructed himself, he nearly killed himself because of his cocaine abuse and the way that New York, New York failed. Then he goes, oh, now I get it. Now I can make Raging Bull because this guy takes himself to the lowest possible moment in his life. He, he wants to punish himself as much as he can, and then ultimately he finds salvation and redemption. Even the most irrede—it's a, it's a very Catholic thought. Again, it, even the most irredeemable among us, even the most lost soul can find salvation. And, and Jake, you know, he finds it in the ring. And the boxing scenes are amazing. Like, probably my favorite scene ever. I mean, it's up there with Pesci's or you think I'm funny. That's as good as it gets, too. Or even the scene in the Copa, the Goodfellas scene where Henry walks in with Karen. That's amazing. You look at the choreography, the, the camera work. But the scene, the last fight where Sugar Ray Robinson beats up Lamana, like they, they still show that in film schools. The film came out in 1980. They still show that. Look at the cutting. And if you listen to the commentary, you know, Marty said, I used the actual announcer to, to narrate the fight. You know, he says, oh, Jake wouldn't want to go. He wanted to, he wanted to keep fighting. And the fact that, you know, he's the famous line, he never got me down, Ray. He never got me down. But that, that sequence, it's so, it's, it really delves deep in expressionism because it's all slow motion. And you see the way that De Niro looks at Sugar Ray Robinson. He, he puts his fist up and it looks like he has a knife in his boxing glove. And you just see the look on De Niro's face, the horror, and then boom, 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 boom. Quick cuts, quick cuts, quick cuts. Shot of blood flying off De Niro's face. The shot of blood literally going on the audience's face. And Scorsese said, when I went to see some of the fights, the one image which haunted me was of the guy picking out the rag and squeezing it in the guy's back, and there was just blood all over the guy's back. And he goes, and that's what I showed in the film. Even though it's black and white, he goes, I just squeeze it. You just see all the blood coming. And the slow motion coming out of his face. Again, lots of, lots of uh, Christ imagery as well. De Niro with his arms splayed out, just taking all this punishment. But because he, he feels that he, he has such low self-esteem. You know, Ebert called it the Madonna horror complex. A guy can't believe that a woman loves himself Loves him because he has such a low opinion of himself. If she loves him, she must either be a Madonna or a saint or a whore. And that's how he views Kathy Moriarty. Like, I'm scum. I'm evil. I'm the worst person. How could you possibly love me? You love me? Well, I'm going to beat you because you can't possibly love me because I'm the worst human being possible. I mean, there's there's so many levels to Raging Bull, psychologically, which I've talked about. But also, again, technically, like I said, the cutting and, and the imagery and the ending. Schrader wrote it, <clears throat> and he said to Marty, I think you're, you're seeking redemption a little too much here because – you know, the film fast-forwards to when he's a fat failure. And, like, he literally gets his championship belt and he cuts it up because he ends up letting a couple of underage women in his club. These girls are, like, 14. He makes out with them. He gets thrown in jail down south in Florida. They really don't care for him. And the scene where he's just in jail screaming, I'm not an animal. I'm not an animal. And he's punching his fists against the wall. And there's his head, he starts banging his head against the wall. And the, 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 the animalistic cries he's giving out. Speaking of animals, even there's some scenes in those boxing scenes. Marty uses, like, elephants, freaking elephant noises and like tiger screaming and stuff just again to get you in the head of jake lamana what it's like in the ring and that was the big difference he had done other boxing movies they always had the camera outside he took the camera inside the ring he literally had the steady cam operator right in de niro's face and even thelma screenmaker the editor said you don't understand the patience de niro had to have because take after take they're just getting this glove punch him in the face punch him in the face and he would just look at marty how many more takes all right couple more they gotta get the sweat a certain way the blood a certain way boom boom Jake LaMotta, who trained De Niro, said he goes, he was so good. He goes, De Niro did it for a year. A year he cut weight. He goes, he was 155, 5'8", lean and mean. He goes, he was so good. LaMotta goes, I swear to God, he could have been a professional boxer. He goes, he wouldn't have been a champion, but he could have been a professional boxer. That's how good De Niro was as far as immersing himself in that role and being what was at the time, you know, the middleweight champion of the world. 
It's awesome, man. And that last scene, last thing I'll say, the last scene, De Niro's now a fat failure. He sees Pesci on the street. He attempts a method of reconciliation. Pesci additionally brushes him off because, you know, Jake just completely embarrassed him and beat him up in front of his family. But he goes, all right, I'll call you, I'll call you. The last scene, talk about levels. Talk about a film geek, a true cinephile, and Marty. It's an actor in De Niro who's reciting a speech done by an actor, Brando, who was playing a boxer, Terry Malloy, and on the waterfront, and De Niro himself is playing a boxer. So an actor playing a boxer doing a speech by an actor who was playing a boxer. And he's doing the famous speech from on the waterfront, and De Niro's looking in the mirror, and he's saying, you know, I could have been somebody. I could have had a class. Because in the movie On the Waterfront, it's about the fact that he took a dive. And here, he didn't want to take a dive, and all the guys from the neighborhood, the Italian mob, Nicholas Colasanto, who was coach on the movie Cheers, uh, the TV show Cheers, by the way, he would kept telling, you know, Joe Pesci's character, why does it, why is he going to be so stubborn? Like, just take a dive. This, boxing's all fixed. This is how it works. We're the mob. We run this. Tell Jake to take a dive, lose the fight on purpose, then I'll get him a fight with the guy, and he's going to win the championship because he's the best. But De Niro's just so stubborn and pig he will not do it. So Pesci eventually convinces him, and that's how he gets the championship, even though everyone can tell he threw the fight. Like, he doesn't even go down. Pesci, the next thing is, how hard is this? Watch this. Hit me. Boom. And he falls on the floor. He's like, what's wrong with you? He's like, why don't you go down? He's like, that guy's a chump. He, he, he couldn't knock me down. He goes, that's the whole point. You're supposed to go down. You're taking the fix here. So at the end, when De Niro does that speech, it's working on multiple levels because, like, is he talking to Pesci's character or is he just kind of channeling what De Niro's character was and on the waterfront? And then Scorsese gives himself the cameo. He's the last one who walks in and goes, oh, you ready to go? Like, yeah, let's do it. And he goes, all right, go get him, champ. Even Spielberg, it's one of Spielberg's favorite movies, and obviously he's very close to Marty. He goes, he goes like, my movies are so different than Marty's. Like, mine's are all about escapism, and especially earlier in his career. You know, these great fantasies. He goes, but Marty's movies, man, they're about the darkness of human condition. And that's what Raging Bull is all about. He goes, and yet within that darkness, he finds the light. You know, he finds redemption. He finds salvation. Having said all of that, the film that is often referred to as his biggest bomb, I went and watched it again. I only ever seen it once. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was as bad as everybody said. But here's, you have to understand the context. The film is New York, New York, 1977. So he's made a couple movies nobody really heard about. Who's that knocking on my door? Boxcar Bertha, which Cassavetti's told him was a waste of time. He makes Main Streets, which is outstanding. He then makes Taxi Driver. Or made House doesn't live for anymore, which shows he can direct women. Alan Burstyn wins an Oscar. Then he makes Taxi Driver. Everyone's like, oh, my God, this is one of the greatest movies of all time. It's actually a box office success, which is crazy. And for his follow-up act, he does New York, New York. And everyone was confounded. They were expecting another Taxi Driver. They were expecting this docu-realism, this gritty street sense, um, you know, more issues of male pathology. Instead, he made a musical. And they go, what? And I think what happened is the audiences and critics were going, no. You're Martin Scorsese. You make movies about angry, young Italian men and the way that New York is, expressionism. We don't want a musical from you. We don't want like a big budget song and dance thing. What are you doing? So I think he was already hurt by the fact audience expectations weren't looking for this. I'm going to read you, Stanzik, what it says on the back of New York, New York, and then I'll tell you how misguided this is. This is what New York, New York's about. I know you haven't seen it. Jimmy is a joint jumping saxophonist on his way to stardom. Francine is a wannabe starlet who dreams of singing in the spotlight. When they meet, sparks fly. And when he plays and she sings, they set New York on fire. It's the beginning of a stormy relationship as the two struggle to balance their passions for music and each other under the pressures of big-time showbiz. You go, not interested. I don't want to see some kind of movie like this. But here is what Marty did with it. He goes, I'm going to take very artificial backdrops, like all these musicals that I loved as a kid. So very fake-looking snow and buildings and all these accoutrements and put it on this set. But then the acting is going to be realistic. I'm going to make it like 70s acting, which is all but intense grittiness. And for a lot of people, it just didn't work because you, you literally see scenes of De Niro and Liza Minnelli arguing. 
and you're looking at the fact it's really clearly fake snow and it's done like in some Hollywood backlot, but that's what he was trying to do because I'm trying to go artificial settings and realistic no-holds-barred acting. The docu-realism of Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, yet an homage and, and a tip of the cap to what the films were that I grew up watching and these musicals which were bright-colored and big and splashy. So it was a very postmodern idea. He's trying to take these old musicals and kind of update them and show what life is like. And it doesn't totally work, but i got to be honest. I thought it was a very good film. It has shades of a great film at times. And I really think it's unfair, the fact that it's been always kind of pilloried as the worst film he's ever made. The Scorsese book that I just got, the, the, well, the first scene is like, so it starts out post-World War. They're all kind of singing and dancing. It's really well done, splashy. He said De Niro hits on Liza Minnelli with the relentlessness of a rapist. He goes, De Niro's one of our great actors. He goes, but he is not a warm character. And even Ebert in his print review said, he goes, I thought his acting at times was kind of like Travis Bickle. Like if Travis Bickle's hitting on a woman, it's just awkward. But the the first scene goes on long, but it does establish their chemistry. And then there's this great musical number, the chemistry blooms. And there's this argument in the car they had, which is an homage to the bad and the beautiful, the old Kirk Douglas movie, which is amazing. Because ultimately what the movie's about is this. De Niro and Liza Minnelli both want stardom. But he is more of an artist, and she's more of a popular musician. And his ego and his insecurity can't handle it. And I think De Niro's character was actually Scorsese's character in real life because he himself was saying, my films are popular with the critics and film lovers love them, but they don't make money. Spielberg's my buddy. Jaws made $100 million in 1975. Tax Driver was a hit, but it wasn't a hit like his movie. Lucas is my buddy. Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's wife, edited Taxi Driver. And he goes, George's movies make money. Mine don't make money. So I think the character of De Niro, the saxophonist who the critics love and is ahead of his time, is actually himself. And Liza Minnelli, who's this big, splashy star, is his buddies. He's trying to go, yeah, that's Spielberg, that's Coppola, that's Lucas. Like, my buddies, they all got it. And the scene that's amazing is this this kind of pre-shadow. This is 1977. This pre-shadowed showbiz couples in which women became the stars and the men weren't used to it. There's a scene at dinner where the agent offers Liza Minnelli the contract and De Niro can't take it. He's so insecure, his ego can't handle it. He has to leave. He should be saying, great job, honey, I'm so proud of you. But this is 40 years ago. Men like that, they didn't act this way. And the film was set in the 40s, so it's actually 70 years ago now. And he actually goes away, and the the agent's trying to tell him, don't worry, I'm going to take care of her. You know, she's going to, because she's pregnant. She's going to have a baby. He goes, don't worry, we'll take care of her. It's going to be fine. And De Niro, there's the camera, Marty was 30 seconds close up at De Niro, and you just see his face register the fact that, like, A, he's a terrible husband. He's supposed to be a priest of his wife, but it's honest. He's like, I want to be the star. And instead, she's the star. And I'm never going to be the star. And now we're having a kid, and she's going to have the kid and be a star on the road while I'm just some chump playing music that doesn't get along with people. So they then have this huge fight in the car, which I said is the homage to Bad and the Beautiful, which is great. And then there's this hospital scene, which is one of the most tender bits of acting I've ever seen by De Niro. You see Liza Minnelli in the hospital bed. De Niro walks in, and she says, I named the baby Jimmy, which is his character's name. And right away, he's like, no, you shouldn't have done that. I t- you, know, you can't do that. And he starts crying a bit. He starts looking down. And he's just saying, I can't, I can't. Meaning he can't see the baby because I, I can't do it. And knowing that if I see the baby, I'm going to stay and I got to leave because his insecurity and his ego cannot handle the fact she's a big time star and he can't play the role of the dutiful husband. That's not him. He's a performer. He's a musician. That's it. So he gets up to leave and then she goes, Jimmy, come back. And she kind of hugs him, embraces him. And that's it. And he walks out and then the, the nurse walks in and goes, uh, your child's here if you want to see me. Because oh, I got something away. I got to go. And that's it. So even though she gains a child, the relationship is over. That's it. The next 30 minutes is a movie about a song called Happy Endings. It's a very famous sequence where Marty really kind of gets his razzle-dazzle on his Busby Berkeley. Boris Levin's a production designer. He did West Side Story. And he really kind of delves into the 40s musicals and that style. 
The ending, De Niro comes back. He's now successful. The movie's gone ahead 10 years because his avant-garde musical style playing, jazz playing, is now big in the 50s. So he goes and visits her. She's an enormous star. He went and actually saw one of her movies. So he's in the audience. He watches. There's a guy. She's great. She then does New York, New York. How's this for a tidbit? Everyone always thinks of New York, New York, Sinatra. New York, New York was written for the Scorsese movie. And the first time it was performed was Liza Minnelli in the movie. How crazy is that? So the last 20 minutes of the movie, he, De Niro goes to see his ex-wife perform, and she performs New York, New York, which was the first time audience has seen it, which is now synonymous with Sinatra and the chairman of the board. And the song wasn't even nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars that year because the film was viewed as such a dud. They go, no, nah, nothing to do with this. Forget it. And they completely ignored it. So the last scene is this. De Niro goes to see her backstage. They flirt a little bit. He goes, all right, nice to see you. He goes and sees his son. So you don't know if he's had a relationship with him. The kid's like 10 now. De Niro goes, hey, you got that bike I sent you? He's like, okay, buddy, good to see you. A little tender scene. He leaves. And then he calls her on the phone. He goes, hey, listen, why don't we go get some Chinese food? She goes, all right. So this is the scene. And Ebert said, I think this is a critical flaw with the movie. Liza Minnelli walks up. She looks towards the open foyer and doesn't see him. De Niro's outside because he just called her from the payphone. You kind of see him waiting, having a smoke. She kind of looks up for a second. Pauses, looks down, goes to the elevator and leaves. De Niro waits a beat and then just walks down the street, and that's the end of the movie. And there's a beautiful, evocative night scene. Ebert said it was a critical flaw because he goes, You don't know if Liza Minnelli's character, Francine, thinks that De Niro should have been waiting in the foyer and thinks that he stood her up against, he's a jerk, and then leaves, or that he just second thought. I love Roger Ebert. He's one of my heroes, great film critic. Completely disagree. It's very clearly apparent watching the movie, she has. A second thought. He says, no, this guy's a bad dude. Like, he's not a caring husband. I love him. I have affection for him, but he's not what I need. And the way she looks up, I'm, I can't believe Ibra actually thinks that she's looking going, oh, he stood me up again. He's not in the foyer. Like, Marty clearly shows the foyer, shows her face, looks down, look at recognition. Like, no, he's not. No, I can't I can't go out there again. I can't go back to the past. And De Niro, for his part, kind of waiting outside, kind of gets it, kind of waits. I don't see her. Nah, because she knows. I'm bad news. And the movie ends. So I think it predicted the rise of working women and show business. Marduk Martin co-wrote the script. He actually also wrote Mean Streets. Marty himself on the commentary addresses the fact it was a huge bomb and said, watching it again, he goes, I love the performances. I thought De Niro and Liza Minnelli were great. By the way, in case you're wondering, by the way, it's a musical. You know I don't like musical dancing. It's not musicals in that they start talking, they start dancing and singing. It's like there's an actual musical number on stage Liza Minnelli's performing. Or De Niro and her are, are training each other. He's playing the saxophone and she's practicing a song. So it's not like they're talking, man, I saw you. The only time De Niro sings, he sings Blue Moon for like 10 seconds. He's on stage like, Blue Moon, you had me standing alone. I'm like, I can just see De Niro. Like, I, Marty, I don't think I should sing. He's like, just give me 10 seconds of Blue Moon. If you give me Blue Moon, we're good. Give me okay, Blue Moon. Now Bob's done. Uh, and that's how the movie ends. Boris Levin, like I said, production designer, West Side Story. I think people should go back and see it, especially if you love Scorsese like I do. You love musicals. You love a different film. I think if it was released now, I think people would appreciate what he was going for. Marty himself, like I said, sorry, he said he loved the performances and he loved the look of the picture. He said, but to be honest, <clears throat> it was heavily improvised and I let the improvisations go too long. And I think if I tightened it up, the movie's two hours and 40 minutes because I think I tightened up, it'd been better. Backstory, he was clearly out of his mind on cocaine at the time because they did Taxi Driver in 76. It won the Palme d'Or. And he said, I'd like to thank the French because they let my ego get the best of me, and then I went crazy on New York, New York. So they, they built all these sets. The script wasn't ready. And Marty goes, now, nah, you know what? I'm so good at this. Let's just do it. And so the, a lot of the movie was improvised. And he himself, his own words said, I was too drugged out to solve the story structure. Like at one point, I was just so high on coke. Andy Warhol tells a story. Marty was having an affair with Liza Minnelli at the time. He said Liza Minnelli and Marty went to a party at one point, and they just said, give me all the drugs you got. <laughs> 
Which, with that knowledge, I'm like, it's amazing how good the movie is. Like, he was high as a kite, apparently, during the filming of it and the editing. And I still think it's a really good movie. That was one of the deepest dives we've ever done on Scorsese, for starters. <laughs> a few things. One, they play New York, New York at Yankee games. Like, that is unbelievable. Secondly, I feel like Scorsese has to have a personal connection or he doesn't do the movie. Like you're saying in Mean Streets, he is Harvey Keitel's character, Charlie. Right. You're saying in Raging Bull, he sees himself in Jake's self-loathing. Right. And now you're saying in New York, New York, he is De Niro's character based on like, oh, he gets critical success, but not commercial success. It might be the greatest thing about him is that he's an artist who always has to have a connection to the material and yet has been this enormous success and has made a living in Hollywood. Like, I can think of a lot of actors who say, I can only do material that I'm a part of, and then nobody ever hears of them. Like, they make these personal projects which don't work. Or they're strictly commercial filmmakers who don't have a personal attachment who still have big success. Marty's the only guy that it goes, everything is really about him and, and his mind and psyche, and yet he's made himself this living in which he's one of the greatest directors of all time, and it's purely through the sheer force of his talent and his passion, because I don't think a lot of other people could do that. But um, New York, New York, go check it out, man. If, hey, maybe if you like musicals, if you really love De Niro like I do, De Niro and, and Scorsese did eight films together. It's the one film, like I said, it's always referred to as the biggest bomb of his career. People say it's the one movie of theirs that didn't work, but I thought it was fantastic, so hopefully you check it out. Actor Showcase. I realized I was over the top there with Mario. But I got to tell like his movies, man, they get in my heart. They get in my soul. They get under my skin like nothing. I've watched those three movies in the last couple weeks, Danzig. Like, I'm, I'll be operating and I just start thinking about, like, shots and scenes and, like, it's crazy. I don't want to know all the times you're thinking about Scorsese. <laughs> ben Affleck now, top five movies. He's made a lot of dogs. Sad news, Gili did not make the top five. Number five will go with Boiler Room. I have a distaste for the film only because people sometimes go, oh, I don't like Glengarry Glen Ross that much. I like Boiler Room better. Those people annoy me to no end, and I, I have nothing to do with them in my life. Having said that, Affleck is doing an homage to Baldwin's famous scene in Glengarry Glen Ross, and I thought Affleck did a good job with it. It's nowhere near Baldwin, and it doesn't match the, the, you know, the mammoth dialogue of Glengarry Glen Ross, but pretty good. Boiler Room is five. Four is Gone Girl. Stands, the only movie Stan and I have gone and seen together in theaters, me, you, and Saruti. Uh, as you said to me, Stanzik, Fincher cast him because he's the perfect guy for it. Because he's kind of got that aloof arrogance to him that you could see why a girl would cheat on him because like, he kind of thinks he's all that. And yet he's a good enough actor that you do feel sorry for him once everything starts happening and all the lies start building up. And you see the exterior of this aloof guy, but deep thinking, no, he's, he's a good guy. You know, He really deserves better. Three is Goodwill Hunting. I remember when I first saw the movie, I thought... He was better than Matt Damon. Like, I thought some of Matt Damon's singing and crying, especially, you know, it's not your fault, the stuff with Robin Williams. Like, I thought it was good, but a bit forced. I thought Affleck was perfect. I love that scene where he's talking to him and he goes, you know, I'd kill to have what you got. I thought that was one of the best scenes in the movie that he's like. Best line of the movie, right? Oh, yeah. The, the best 10 minutes of my day. Yeah. Like, I think about that all the time. I think that's some of the best acting of his career. Affleck was so natural and so unaffected in that scene. I'm like, that's the way I think a lot of young men think. Like, man, I would kill to have what you got. And, and you're, you're this neurotic mess. Like, grow up. Uh, number two is The Town. Ty Burr, the film critic for Boston Globe, put it well, because if you love film noirs like I do, he said, Jeremy Renner is playing Cagney, and Affleck is straight up Bogart. He's the cool lead, minus the fedora, he's pretty much playing Bogart, the cool lead who is you know, in over his head. Affleck directed it, and as we mentioned earlier, he's a better director than he is an actor, even though I do think he's a good actor, and did a decent job as Batman. Number one is not Batman. We went with Argo as number one. It won Best Picture, I think, helped him in large part by the fact he was snubbed for Best Director, which he should have been nominated for. He gets snubbed. Actually helped the movie's chances. They go, you know what? We ignored him. Let's at least give the movie Best Picture and redeem ourselves. 
Uh, it's skillful because I love the inside Hollywood stuff with Alan Arkin, kind of like Shades of Wag the Dog. You know, I'm just producer war because you know, Argo blank yourself, and it's you know kind of funny. But then he he really directs it well in terms of suspense. Took liberties with the story, which Canadians were upset about. Toronto Film Festival, they said, "Hang on a second, you made Canadians sound like these." These bystanders, they're actually critical in the movie. Affleck's response, it's not a documentary, it's a movie. I'm making it for an American mainstream audience. You know, tough luck. Responsive, and you can go, Argo, <laughs> yeah, 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 blank yeah, yourself. Yeah. Cranston in the movie. Cranston, fantastic, small role. But Argo really is, I think, Affleck's towering achievement. Curious to see what he puts together with The Batman and The Accountant, which is coming out just a couple days from now. So top five, once again, Argo, The Town, Goodwill Hunting, Gone Girl, Boiler Room. By the way, a little inside ESPN info for you. Been working with Trey Wingo the last few days. I don't know if closet cinephile is the right term. Yeah, I know. Loves movies, loves Argo. Really? All about it. He said, whenever it's on, I'm in. I'm watching it. I do know he loves movies because he'll tweet quite a bit. Like a lot of like 80s movies, and I know he likes comedies. Trey's a really good sense of humor. But like if I mentioned the verdict, Tim, I think he'd light up. I think you're right. We were talking a little Redford, a little Paul <laughs> Newman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Trey Wingo coming soon to the podcast. Actors in three words. Go ahead, Stanza. I feel like we're hit and miss with these, even like periodically not doing them all the time, but we're, we're still Yeah, we don't do it every podcast. And yeah. at first, when you said hit or miss, I thought you meant your words, which are definitely hit or miss. We'll start with the guy I know you love, yeah. Ethan Hawke. I think he's fantastic. I think he is such a good actor. The is first, that a word? Did the you first, steal that from Mike Golick? The first word is underrated. He's been nominated like five times for an Oscar. He's not only a great actor, he's a great writer. And I love the fact that number two word is multi-talented. He's written like five books. He's written like a kid's book. He's written like a book of poetry. He writes like young adult fiction. He writes adult fiction. He, he's also a musician. Like I think Ethan Hawke is one of those guys who's incredibly talented with everything he does. So multi-talented. And then earnest is the third word. Because he himself has joked with the – actually, you know what? I was going to go with pretentious, but that's mean. I'll go with earnest. Because he himself said that a lot of times people call him pretentious because he's just so – artistic and he has so many impulses and so many different avenues that he wants to feed that people think he's pretentious but i don't think he is i think he's earnest i think he just he's so passionate about what he wants to do i didn't know that about him he sounds a lot like james franco yes he's very Super much talented same yeah right for college culture, professor right exactly like unbelievable yeah uh emily blunt i don't have a lot for emily blunt i'll go with british for one i'll go with krasinski because she told me she's married to john krasinski the office and i defer to you give me a third word on emily oh Blunt. she's so hot <laughs> okay all right we'll go with i'm a so big hot. fan really yeah okay fetching we'll go with fetching. did you see her in that movie with damon where they're walking through the doors what is it oh um mike adjustment a. bureau <laughs> i have not seen you haven't seen, it's mike a. a for the win by the way <laughs> with adjustment bureau making a cameo here at cinephile oh boy mike we're off the rails here uh don Cheadle. I, Miles is the first word because he played Miles Davis. It was a real passion project for him. He directed it, co-wrote it, produced it. I, I said of the film, I thought he had a real whispery charisma about him. So Miles is the first one. I'll always think of Miles Davis. Two is Rwanda because of Hotel Rwanda. He's amazing in that movie. Unforgettable performance. And three, speaking of unforgettable performance, the third one is actually forgotten. Because I think people forget how good he was in Devil in a Blue Dress, your boy Denzel's movie. He won the L.A. Film Critics Prize for Best Supporting Actor. I think his character's name was Mouse. Even I forgot the name of the character. But I remember watching that going, this guy's gangbusters. He's going to get nominated for an Oscar. He's going to win an Oscar. Wasn't even nominated. People forget how good he was in Devil in a Blue Dress. All right. Let the record show that I don't even like what I did with the last two here, but I did it. <laughs> so we'll just say the names and, and move on uh, and not make a big deal about it. But uh, Jennifer Aniston. First one is hair. Best hair in the business. For years, people had the Rachel. Still has great hair. Number two is jilted. Every damn time. People Magazine. 20 years after Brad dumped me, still feeling good, still feeling strong. Like 
I get that it's a big part of her persona. At times, it gets a little too much. And third is racy. Like she, she definitely likes sexing it up a little bit, even as she's gone into her forties now. I give Aniston credit. She gets a little racy. She was a, a stripper in that movie with. Um, she's a mom who strips in the movie. We are the Millers. Mike yeah, again you. for yeah, the win. Yeah, 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 exactly. Adjustment Bureau and we're the Millers. He's getting Mike a K. T-shirt. They're coming. Yep. And lastly, I can go one of two directions here. No, no, do the one that you, the one that the, the tie-in with Aniston. Well, there's two. There's two I could go. Oh, obviously. Okay. You could do Brad or Angelina. We're doing Brad. <laughs> no, we're doing Brad. Okay. Uh, number one is divorced. It's just hot off the presses here. Guy's got six kids. He is divorced. And and, and it, ending I never saw coming. Talk about unpredictable endings. Like, those two are going to stay together forever. They're both kind of crazy. Both have big hearts. Both talented, but kind of nuts. But what? They're, Brad and Angie are no longer. So one is divorced. Two is hunk. My wife loves Brad Pitt. He was at the Toronto Film Festival like nine years ago. She waited in line outside. Two hours, we had a baby at the time. Yusuf was in his diaper, peed all over the diaper, didn't change his diaper because she didn't want to miss that spot. Brad came over, signed her thing, touched her finger, didn't wash her hand for a week. It was ridiculous. Do your, you and your wife have like a celebrity list like yes. a lot of couples do? De Niro. Yeah, you're right. Is <laughs> De Niro on her list or your De Niro's list? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. De Niro. Some, some has some, there's some overlap with some of the lists. Uh, the third word for Brad Pitt is grungy. I feel like if I knew him, he's just a dirty guy. He doesn't shower much. Like there's, you never really see a clean cut Brad Pitt. Like he's always. I picture true romance. I picture seven. Just kind of a dirty, grungy guy. But I do think he's a talented actor. Divorced, hunk, grungy. This has been three words. This cinephile definitely went off the rails at the end. My thanks to J.K. Simmons, and please go watch the uh, Raging Bowler, Mean Streets, or New York, New York. Uh, next podcast coming up in a couple weeks. We're going to have Christopher Guest. We've got two kings of comedy. Christopher Guest and Kevin Hart. Can't wait for that. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.